good evening, or good morning, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be. Around this rotating globe, welcome to another live edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, where tonight we're going to take you boldly where someone, it is quite apparent, has boldly gone before. We have a incredibly important show for you tonight. It kind of marks a benchmark. It's coming off two hours that I shared with George Norrie last Thursday night, where I was able to introduce this extraordinary concept that NASA's actually taking pictures of ancient ruins on Mars, and somehow some of them in the last month, since uh, May 12th, have leaked out. And it was only that that in reconstructing all the whole history here, that we've kind of been able to figure out that NASA had to scramble to catch up, and they put out this gigapan showing the whole site, and of course they're all claiming with one voice, nothing to see here, move along, move along, it's only rocks and sand. Well, after the next three hours, um, we're going to uh, ask you to take a poll. Not a thing formal. Uh, I did this on Coast the other night. I asked uh, George's audience if they would write to us and let us know when they looked at these close-up images of this astonishing architecture on a place where it does not have any business under the NASA model we've been living under for like, what, 50 years, any business being. Yet it's there. So I'm going to actually read during the show. I'm not quite sure when yet. We're, we're kind of you know switching things in real time because there's new things happening. There's new data that I just saw, which is going to blow your minds. I guarantee you. Anyway, um, I want to start tonight with Georgia, Georgia Lambert, who is our resident metaphysician. As you know, she worked for over 10 years for uh, Manly Hall there at the uh, center in Los Angeles. And uh, we have her on a lot because uh, as I've been finding over the last several years, particularly after Robin, you know, uh, went up and died, I mean, it's really, she should be here. I have turned more and more to other non-numerical answers to some of these extraordinarily profound questions. So that's why I turn to Georgia a lot, because that's her background, metaphysics. Meta, you know, everything, physics. And of course, we're dealing with a metaphysics, except it's hyperdimensional physics. And I obviously see the two as incredibly integrated, as if I'm not being too presumptuous, so does she. So to give a kind of a background scene here, Georgia has been ill. So she's really making a super effort to be on the first few minutes tonight because she has something very important to tell you, to corroborate. Because I knew if I just told you or somebody else, you probably wouldn't believe it. But you need to hear it from Georgia Lambert directly because it impacts, as you'll hear later in the program, the larger concept, the larger effort to figure out what the hell is NASA doing? What the hell is the deep state doing? And why do they keep picking on our show? So without further ado, Georgia, are you there? I'm here limping along, oh, but I'm here. Poor baby. Ah. So tell us, as, as long as your strength holds out, what you were doing on Thursday night when I was on coast and why I thought we should leave the show tonight with this. Well, I turned into coast uh, just because you were on. And the first hour was lovely. I was having a good time with it. And then 11 o'clock rolled around. 
And just after 11 o'clock, the station I was listening to, which is KFI here in Los Angeles, which is a huge station. 50,000 watts, clear channel. You can hear it clear in New York if the ionosphere is just right. Yeah, it's a, it's it's just huge. And, and it's one of the most well-known stations here in Los Angeles. And so, in Southern California. Yeah. So I was listening, and just after 11, it went dead. What? Dead, dead air. Completely dead air. Now, the radio didn't switch off. This was a regular radio. It just went dead. And it, it and I thought, well, okay, another few seconds, something will come on. Nothing. Nothing. Five minutes goes by. I say, hmm, let's try something else. I go to another room, turn on another radio to that station. It's dead. Hmm. I try I try both radios. They pick up other stations just fine. I can hear the other stations. Go back to six forty KFI, nothing. Hmm. Dead air. So I think, okay, let's go to the computer. So I go to the computer and turn on the uh, KFI from the computer. Different system. Dead air. Oh. Twenty minutes. Are you sure it was at nineteen point five? I'm 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 deadly serious. I'm you know, it probably was These people are ritual quite, fanatics, okay? It wasn't it wasn't quite twenty minutes. It was a little after eleven, <laughs> just just after it, and it was close uh, enough for folk music. Tw- Twenty minutes later, it came back on, and the rest of the the show went. See, on. now this is why people. This is important because I spent the first hour kind of backgrounding the politics of this, and of course, people tune out politics these days out of sheer, sheer desperation. We're being inundated with stupid politics. So when I go into the NASA thing and the Chinese and the Russians and all that, a lot of people probably just said, "Oh, wait till he gets to the pictures. Wait till he gets to the pictures." Second hour was devoted to these stunning images. And I was doing the setup at the beginning, as you do. You provide context, background, foundation, as the lawyers call it. You basically put people in the big picture. And I went through a series of images with George, and he's asking questions and responding. And all of that on the biggest station in Southern California was frozen off the air for 19.5 minutes. We'll think about that. What I find stunning, Georgia, is normally when stations have breakdowns, they have alternate programming. You know, they, exactly. they switch to anything, something, because dead air is the worst nightmare of a broadcaster. Worst nightmare. For them and, to be... I'm, for them I'm to, wondering if anybody else had the same phenomenon. I went and looked on Los Angeles. There's not a whisper of news. And you would think with, you know, hundreds of thousands of people listening to KFI that somebody else would have noticed that there was 20 minutes of dead air. Now, a former producer of this show, a gal named M, who lives in southern southern Los Angeles, I think, uh, as opposed to you, you're out kind of west over in the in the um, uh, what's Riverside that? area. Yeah, Riverside area, yeah. She's literally right next to the damn station. She sent me an email after the show. She said, "Well, it was up. It was fine up until I lost the signal." So these are two independent people that I know very well, who I trust or independently, because you guys haven't talked to each other in years, independently reporting there was an outage, yet I looked at the news, there's nothing, nothing. 
in the L.A. area. Now, was this selective? I don't imagine that. So, you know, this is a huge mystery, but it's only one of a million on the road to Mars and through the Martian doorway that I've experienced personally, me and Robin experienced personally, over over the decades I've been doing this. It's like there's this old, ancient, um, probably cliche from back at the time that your dad was in uh, uh, NATO. It goes something like, you know, you you know you're over the target where the flak is thickest. Right. So somebody did not want KFI, which is a clear channel, can be heard all over the country when the ionosphere is right, did not want them to broadcast 20 minutes of me describing the background to the incredible door on Mars. Gosh, I wonder we why. Need, we, we need to have people call in or write to you if they experience the same thing. Yeah, yeah, I, I love and, corroboration. I was just and, stunned. And maybe, maybe the coast audience uh, would be a good one to pull on that. If we can reach them. <clears throat> now, we have a lot of responses because I remember I put out the call the other night for people who were looking in George's audience at this stuff to write us here. And I'm going to read a few of those because they're amazing in their synoptic perception. And again, it isn't 100%. Because statistically, when you get larger numbers, there's always that residuum. But it's close to like 99 plus percent of everybody out there just says, oh, it's a door. Of course it's a door. Despite what NASA has gone to great lengths to beat the pulp and into the dust and into oblivion. Well, dear, I don't want to keep you up any longer. That was what I wanted you. Oh, thank you. I'm going to be using one of your images that you supplied later in the evening. So... um, you will be here in spirit, if not in <laughs> in, in body tonight. And I thank you well, so just, much for just, doing this. Oh, you're very welcome. Just just uh, for everybody, the image that, that you're using of mine is pure art fantasy. Uh, so uh, it's it's kind of tucked in with all of the serious stuff. Well, when well, it is serious as you're going to hear, because even you don't know the latest. This is moving at warp nine. Okay. Um, I'll lie down and listen. Excellent. Good night, everybody. Good night, dear. Good night. Okay. Um, if you go, if you're new to the show, which if you listen to George, you probably are, the way you find the section we call Radio with Pictures, which I stole freely from RKO, where we had a development deal for a movie many, many years ago, you go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our URL. Click on uh, tonight's banner, which says very prominently... It only takes one white crow. And then in my promo, I kind of explain what that means. Um, the um, uh, If you click on the banner, that takes you to the guest page. And under the guest page, oh, my computer seems to be frozen. No, 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 that's not good. Why is it frozen? No, don't freeze. It must mean that our little server, which is a lot smaller than George's, and people had a lot of problems the other night, you know, getting on, on George's, you know, big premiere servers. Well, I can't get in for the time being. But anyway, if you click on that banner and you can get in, under that you will see uh, a type section with two lines which basically says fast links. And there's my name and there's there's other names of the guests tonight. Click on my name. That will take you down to the... Um, uh, uh, radio with pictures section where I have these images all racked up and this computer is frozen 
you know, you wonder all the time how they do it. I'm still wondering how they do it. So let me try this. Okay. And I'm going to do this. No single point failure. Ah, now I'm in. See, always have a backup. That's what my grandmother used to tell me. And my mother. And my grandfather. And Anyway, so um, if you're there and you click on my name, you know, it takes you down to the section where it says Richard's Items. <laughs> Item number one, um, you may or may not remember that a couple of weeks ago I, pr I pr preview the idea that the huge Artemis moon rocket, the successor to the NASA Saturn V, that took the Apollo astronauts to and from the moon, that that new rocket called Artemis, or SLS, which stands for Space Launch System, the Artemis tag is the program name. Artemis was Apollo's sister. Very interesting gal. Kind of reminded me of uh, Catherine Hepburn, or maybe Robin. Anyway, um, if you click on that, you'll see that they are in the beginnings of a 45 our count, a countdown called a wet dress rehearsal, meaning they fill all the tanks, run everything the way they're doing for a real countdown, and they literally go through every little minuscule picayune thing until they get to T0. Then they stop. Then they drain the fuel. They go back and look at all the data, all the computer charts, all the telemetry, every, everything that's been monitored and sent through the engineers, and they have an incredible review. And then based on that, you know, did everything pass? Did everything work? Is everything ready? They will decide then and announce it probably uh, in, a, in a week or so when they're going to have the first Artemis unmanned launch around the moon which is the complete space system that will take astronauts, Americans, and this time a woman, and someone of color, we were told, to the moon in back, um, not this year, but next year. This is a empty spacecraft outfitted just like astronauts were on board. I think there's even some surrogates like, you know, little robots like the uh, one they have on the space station. But it's not going to be personed or manned or humaned. It will be an unmanned mission, um, unlike what we did in Apollo, where um, the first couple were, were uh, manned, but the first trip to the moon out of Earth orbit, that was manned. That was the my baptism of fire at CBS, Apollo 8. God, do I remember that. Anyway, so this is all coming up. And, of course, you all know that when we actually have the first Artemis mission en route, which will spend several weeks, I think about two weeks, orbiting the moon in this incredibly nice elliptical orbit that dips down very close and out very far away. So we'll get incredible close-up HD images and HD video and all kinds of imaging that were not even imaginable back during Apollo. They had film. Most of you guys don't know what film is, but we will describe it when it's time. Anyway, this is all going to be live and electronic, and we're going to see things, frankly, that will blow your minds. Unless NASA tries to pull another fast one and censor the imagery streaming back in real time, the incredibly high-def live video, etc., etc., as they are mucking around with Curiosity's data coming from Mars from the site of the doorway. And we will get to that later in the evening and or morning. 
Item number two. We've been tracking, of course, the deployment and checkout of the Webb Space Telescope. Uh, pardon the chair. I've got to remember to get WD-40. Anyway, uh, item number two is a kind of where we are with Webb in terms of checking out um, the instrumentation. I mean, this thing is loaded, as they used to say, for bear. There's all kinds of spectroscopes and imaging and and imaging photometry and comparative imaging. I mean, it's an amazing uh, tour de force of the instruments on this telescope, which, of course, is a million miles away tonight, sitting, well, actually not sitting, it's orbiting in what's called a halo orbit around a point which is a million miles behind the Earth, the so-called Lagrange Point 2, named, as you might guess, after a French astronomer, mathematician who figured out uh, where these gravitational points are in space and multi-bodied systems. And there are five of them. And two of them are, you know, front and back of between Earth and Moon and between the Moon and space beyond it. And then between the space uh, behind the Earth and then in front of the Earth. And anyway, you can go look it all up, you know, L. Just look for the Lagrange points. Point is that the telescope was parked in this halo orbit after taking a few months, a couple months to get there, um, kind of like a slow boat to China because they could not overshoot. They couldn't stop if they'd overshot. That's all celestial mechanics of orbits. Anyway, it's been there now in the checkout mode for several months since uh, a couple months ago. In July, we're supposed to get our first real data. I think the date is July 12th. But in the meantime, they're checking out the instruments, and that item number two will tell you where we are. Now, if you scroll down in that item, which is actually the web blog of continuing developments, you will see an item, I think it's the third one down on the list, about the meteorite, the meteoroid that hit Webb. Oh, oh, the pain of it. Oh, the humanity. Oh, I mean, come on. The media have made such a big fuss over nothing because... It was bigger than NASA said they expected. It was not modeled. And obviously, it's because somebody didn't think this through as carefully as you do when you're running a real mission. Why is the Hubble, not Hubble, why is Webb orbiting at the L2 point? Because the L2 point is a region of relative stability in a melange of irascible, chaotic orbits in a solar system that is mostly orderly, but some places you can be flung into a very disorderly orbit very quickly through influences of other bodies in the solar system. And the L2 point is one of those points of stability. So the reason that I think they're being struck more often than they predicted, nobody, and this sounds crazy at NASA, but nobody apparently realized that in the L2 location, there would be the trapping of more natural background meteoroids to begin with. That's what happens in these L2 positions. Things are trapped and then they leave. Some of the L2 positions are relatively stable, meaning once trapped, they pretty much hang around for you know a few million years. Others, like L2, it's more like a revolving door. Oh, we're back to doors again. And things come in and things eventually move out under the little gravitational nudges and tweaks of the moving bodies and the rest of the system. And frankly, what I think Webble, uh, Webble, <laughs> Webb is functioning as is a giant tennis court size micrometeoroid detector 
in the L2 position behind the Earth, a million miles behind the Earth away from the sun. So the big question, of course, is will this disturb or damage or impact in a negative way the Webb mission? And the answer is a resounding no, 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 even if it's hit by dozens of these, because the mirror alone is 21 feet wide. Now, several years ago, back during the Apollo program, a friend of mine, his name was Harlan Smith, was director of the famed McDonald Observatory in western Texas, southwest Texas, there in those, uh, I think of the Davis Mountains. Anyway, NASA had built, as part of its network for beaming uh, laser pulses to the moon and receiving the echoes, which would determine the distance to the moon based on mirrors that the astronauts emplaced to receive and reflect those laser beams, they built a special dedicated telescope with NASA funding which was 107 inches wide. That was the, the height of the mirror or the width of the mirror. And so 12 into 107, it was more than eight or nine feet. I, I don't have a calculator here in front of me, and I'm not going to do that live on the air. You can all do that. Anyway, it was a many, many foot wide mirror. The 200 inch, by comparison, is about 16, inches, 16 feet wide. So 107 inches would be a little over eight feet, okay? Anyway, some good old boy one night, mad at NASA or mad at Harlan or mad at something, went in the dome with a 45 and fired point blank at the damn mirror. Pow! And of course, everybody freaked out. Later, Harlan told me that when they actually did comparative tests between photographs taken before the nut and after the wing nut with a 45 and un, you know unloosened it on a, a poor defenseless telescope, they couldn't really detect any difference in the light scattering, in the resolution, in the blur, nothing. So even a 45 fired point blank into a relatively small mirror, and the web mirror is three times the size of the uh, 107 inch, um, it's probably not going to be optically detectable. The reason that they caught it is because the impact and the energy caused by the little collision was so great that it jogged the C3 mirror. They all have numbers and names, you know. It's a, it's a hexagon. It isn't one mirror. It's all these little mirrors, hexagons that fit together to create the synthesis of a big 21-foot mirror. They found that the meteorite collision, the kinetic energy, had literally knocked that mirror slightly out of alignment. So, of course, there are motors on the back, and they will put it back in exactly the right position to within a few wavelengths of the light that they're using. And I will bet dollars to Navy Beans that if you look at the test images before and after, no scientist will be able to detect that a little meteorite, meteoroid, whatever you want to call it, uh, struck the mirror at a high velocity of several thousand miles per hour and left a scar. That's how huge this telescope is compared to any that we have ever used before. Now, item number three. This is where things get really interesting. I'm on coast the other night and I'm talking to a whole bunch of people who probably haven't heard about this, that there are things on Mars, there are structures, there's artifacts, there's NASA cover-ups, and we've reached some kind of, uh, um, you know, breakpoint, some kind of, of paradigm shift, some kind of uh, 
climax in this long, unending soap opera with NASA keeping everything secret and us outside trying to say, look at that, look at that, look over there. So Elon Musk has now entered the conversation. I mean, did anybody think he wouldn't? Remember, he's in the process for some reason, which is not totally clear to all us must watchers. He's trying to buy Twitter. Well, the other day he had the equivalent of a Zoom call with a whole bunch of Twitter employees and somehow, and I haven't heard the actual conversation yet, but somehow the conversation turned to aliens, whereby Elon Musk, who brought it up, tells his potential employees, among a whole bunch of other stuff, that he hasn't seen evidence yet to suggest that aliens are real. Okay, now let's pause, okay? Because I'm a wordsmith. I write for a living. And there's a lot of people in the audience who are wordsmiths. There's a lot of people on our panel tonight who write for a living. Maybe not full time, but they have to communicate. Words have meaning. That's why laws are written. The language of a law is very, very precise, as precise as the lawmakers can conceive. Now, sometimes laws are written deliberately loosey-goosey, so they basically aren't a law at all. But most of the time, good people are trying to constrain aberrant human behavior by writing laws which are precise, which means it depends on what the law says, the definition in the language. So when Alan very cutely says he has found no evidence suggesting that aliens are real, I agree with him because we're not in our model talking about aliens. We're talking about family, human beings who can genetically mate and match with any human anywhere on the planet tonight when they want to and apparently wanted to a lot. So he is technically, by saying that, within the letter of the law. But why is he bringing up the subject at all? <clears throat> it's kind of like the story my grandmother told of uh, when, um, you know, she was uh, having some babysitter in and she and her husband, my grandfather, were going out. And the last thing that she told the babysitter which was the babysitter of my mom and my mother's brother, my uncle, Harold, who's no longer with us, was, and don't let them put beans up their nose. And the babysitter looked at her, and my mother and my uncle looked at her, and they both thought, oh, what a great idea. So what Musk is doing is salting the landscape with concepts that the mainstream is not used to hearing from mainstream people. He's, as the uh, agency folks used to tell me, he is um, causing a soak time to occur. Soak time meaning the time it takes for the culture to kind of come up to speed and get used to the concept and be soaked in the information so when it takes a turn it's not something they've never heard of it's like oh there's a new twist in the story now Musk says well maybe they are folks out there and maybe in other words he's laying foundation 
Because I, of course, have been looking at him owning Twitter and asking why would a guy whose spaceships are going to go and someday inevitably with the people he's going to send to Mars and the 100-person starships, they're going to trip over ruins. It's absolutely, you know, unescapable. I could make a billion dollars making a side bet. And the only guy who could pay me off is Musk at this point. So why is he doing this? Because he's setting the foundation for when his people, his ships, his missions land and have to announce to the world, apart from all the censors, apart from the deep state, apart from NASA, apart from whoever really runs the world, a clear channel on Twitter which he owns and in the law therefore controls. So I'm looking at the whole Twitter acquisition as getting ready for the big reveal. And on that note, I thought tonight might be a nice time to play this. This is a multi-multi-leveled pun. Let's see how many of you get it. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and if you touch that dial, well, you'll miss everything. We'll return. Science and thought. The 
other side of midnight.com. You know, this has got to be, for a whole bunch of reasons, one of my favorite songs. And it's only become more favorite over the years because it encapsulates not just my life on this road after I walked through the Martian doorway decades ago, but in a larger sense, given what we're going to tell you tonight and show you, it really encapsulates the whole idea that we're dealing with somehow family out there. No, Alon, they're not aliens. They are relatives. And some of them are good. And like all of us know, some of them are bad. And as we all know, some of them can be really, really bad. And we are about to join, well, rejoin, the whole damn family. Or as my grandmother once said, the whole fandamily. <laughs> anyway, We've taken the long way home. We're almost there. What is through the Martian doorway? What is on the other side? What, as Robert Heinlein wrote, is on the other side of this potential doorway for the human race into summer? Okay, for my first guest tonight, if I can, and we're getting some kind of a feedback. Where is that coming from? Somebody's mic is open. Somebody's mic is open. And it's not me. Keith? Testing? Uh-oh. Now, why am I getting a feedback? See, this is what these guys do. They play havoc with your system. So, Jonathan, are you there? I am here. Ah, there you are. Okay. I want to introduce Jonathan tonight, and to do that, that, that um, Keith, we got to solve that. I'm getting a feedback in my ear, and I presume everybody else is hearing it too. John, are I you think hearing? It's coming from Barbara. Oh. Okay, Barbara, you got to mute. Are we clear? I don't hear myself anymore. Nice. That's good. Okay, let me let me do this properly, okay? Um, because this is important. I want everybody on the record. So, 
and I hit the wrong thingy. Oh, why do I do that all the time? Here we are. Jonathan Wolbach began leaving his body in the fall of 1965, which, by the way, was the anniversary of the first mission to Mars, answering psychic distress calls from people and spirits, and he came out of cutting his Samaritan teeth on comic books and cartoons, and that became the kind of projection of the persona that he has been experiencing in, frankly, what I would call hyperdimensional travels, and we'll talk a bit about that. Um, I'm not going to go through his whole bio because if I do, we'll be here all night with everybody's bios. Today, Jonathan is involved heavily in 3D modeling and animation. He does video and audio editing and is producing content for several streaming platforms. He has a show called The Out-of-Body Experience, and it's available on Roku, Paraflix, Amazon Fire, Apple TV, Prime Video, Google Play, etc., etc., etc. He is the author of four superhero adventure novels and is currently at work on the sequel to the Ram IM series titled The Dolphinius Effect. And the reason that John is with us tonight is because he has a really good eye. He knows where this ultimately someday is going to be going. And so what we're doing tonight is kind of, again, setting the scene. John has been busily looking at this uh, door site on Mars, and he found some astonishing new stuff. So, John, where do you want to take us? Well, let's start with my item number one. Okay, what I... we have to do is fast links to items up under the banner, click on Jonathan, and that will take you to his section. Number one, SQ Box Staircase, the Longfellow House. What is yes. the Longfellow House? The Longfellow House, really cool place. If you visit Boston, uh, I, I encourage you to go there and check this place out. Um, so last night I told Keith I would wrap up my images uh, today when I got up. So I, I got up around 11 a.m. and put on the coffee and plopped down in front of the TV. I'm thinking of my images and on comes, I, I see uh, Bob Vila from this old house. Yeah, I know him. I mean, I know yeah, him. I never met him, but yeah. Yeah, Bob Vila. And um, he's standing there with a tour guide at the base of the staircase. And I go, that's that's Longfellow House. And so, and they're talking about the construction and the railing. And then they, um, they walk through like item two. They walk into this room and Bob Vila is, the guy's knowledge is amazing. He's talking about and like the chair in in the center of item number two is the story of uh, this tree was cut down when Longfellow was away and he came home and he said, where's the tree? And he was so sad. And then some uh, some young people came along and they took the wood from the cut down tree and they made the chair there that you see in the center of that photo. And uh, number three, they walk into the parlor and then number four, they go in into this room uh, with this grand piano and and Bob Vila is going oh my gosh look at the trim along the ceiling and the pillars uh, flanking the fireplace and he's just full of information about the construction and how they would have made all this back in the day it was none of it was machined it was all by hand and these expert craftsmen um, number five is another image of the entranceway and number six is how it looked back in the day and number seven is what it looks like today if you walk by there john i hate to ask this but 
How does this relate to Mars? You're going to find out very soon. Um, number nine is uh, Brattle Street, where you can see the Longfellow House there in the distance. And in fact, this is where I parked when I, I was uh, 10 years at the Harvard Ed School. And I would park here and walk a block and a half to uh, Appian Way. And so I've, I've walked this path, you know, 10,000 times probably. And um, I know all the cracks in the sidewalk and the manhole cover there and all this. So, but I, I've taken the tour several times. I just, I just love that property. And number 10, you can see an overview of uh, Longfellow made an agreement with Cambridge that all that land you see used to be empty. And Longfellow said, you can sell this, you know, after I'm gone if you and build houses or whatever. But I want to keep a view of the house down to the river because he loved that view looking out the window and he could see down to the Charles River that separates Cambridge from Boston. And so as I sat there watching this, I go, this is what this is exactly what we're doing um, on, on your show here, Richard. We're we're the Bob Vila of Mars. We're <laughs> this old house. <laughs> Right? That's a long way to go for a metaphor. Good <laughs> grief, John. <laughs> yeah. But hey, you know, these things, it was kind of uh, synchronous to me. So number 11 is the wide shot of the image in question tonight with the doorway. And number 12. Well, wait, 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 wait. On number 11, you have marked two areas of interest. Talk about those areas. Okay, uh, entrance one is the doorway that we've been covering, and uh, entrance two is over on the side there. That's these mounds have they all have different, they have several entrances. There's not just uh, one entrance. There'll be what I found is at the end of these long, let's say it's a long barrow, the end of each barrow will have main entrances and then on the sides you'll have these smaller entrances should so, we should should we kind of define the architectural background for people that aren't familiar with why when i saw this image it was like oh my god look at that confirmation if you've been following our work on the air on this show over the last several years you know that uh bob harrison who couldn't be with us tonight who was a researcher living in england has done extensive work using the orbital imagery from multiple missions to Mars <clears throat> to find what I call the sites of the ancient arcologies. What's an arcology? Well, it's a coined term, uh, arcology, architectural ecology. Back in the 1960s, late 60s, a, a genius architect from Italy named Paolo Soleri realized that Earth was going to hell in a handbasket because of environmental problems. Um, this was kind of around the Nixon administration where EPA and all that was just kind of beginning to get born as an idea and enacting it into law with looking insuperable and, you know, the usual problems. So he's looking at the Earth as an architect and he says, well, given what's going on, ultimately human beings will be forced to build huge, huge contained cities staggeringly high, miles high, miles, multiple miles wide with all kinds of glass and parapets and everything, all sealed 
against an outside environment that's going to get weirder and weirder and totally uninhabitable. And ultimately, in Solari's projection, humanity would only survive with incredible high technology and additional power sources and all that in these super contained enclosed cities, literally miles in every dimension, including miles, tens of miles tall at some point, uh, all within structural materials that we know here on Earth. And so that was the arcology concept. And I remember that first meeting I had with the CBS people when I was walking up the up the 57th Street to have lunch at the restaurant that they were taking me to. I started talking about Solari and the arcologies. We hadn't even been to the moon yet. That's why they called me to New York, you know, to prepare for Apollo 8, the first mission around another planet by humans. And here I am talking about things that are so far beyond their ability to even imagine. And I remember looking up at this wonderful fall sky over Manhattan, crystal blue with the stall skyscrapers. And I said, someday this will all be inside a huge enclosed pyramidal building called an arcology. And they all looked at me kind of weird. Well, that was the beginning of our relationship. They for the old time I was at CBS, they looked, some of them looked at me kind of weird. Anyway, sorry, John, but what I'm saying <laughs> is that these structures we're seeing in our model are the collapsed high tech remains of huge buildings, which when Mars underwent this incredible solar system wide catastrophe, they all fell down because of Richter 12 or 14 earthquakes that totally rattled Mars to its core and destroyed everything it pancaked down. Think of the World Trade Towers, those what they used to call the piles after the 9-11. The firemen would say working on the pile. Well, it was a pile of collapsed pancake debris from what used to be, you know, 1,500 foot high or higher skyscrapers, pancaked down what was left of them. Think of the same thing happening to an incredibly sophisticated high-tech culture on Mars millions of years ago, and then later, subsequent evolutions of Martians, i.e. us, i.e. the great-great-great-great ancestors of modern humans, picking up the cudgels from ancient history, reconstructing technology and science and knowledge and their knowledge of the world and their relationship to the galaxy and beyond. And around them are these incredibly ancient mounds of super high-tech, godlike ancient civilization stuff. So what did they do? I think a succession of civilizations, just like we would do, and we will someday do when we get there, and we have done here on Earth, what do we do with ancient ruins? We excavate. We look for stuff. We try to piece together how did it fit into the human story. Of course, here on Earth in the last 6,000 years, all we've got are low-tech ruins to examine. Suppose you knew, suppose it hadn't been suppressed, that actual, real human beings with incredible high-tech, hyperdimensional technology, the last epoch of that era on our civilization was something like 30,000 years ago. And we, if it weren't suppressed, we'd all know this, and we'd know where 
the best preserved remains of that incredible era still are on earth and accessible to anybody with a you know 747 first class ticket it's the antarctic and that's a whole other show and robert i can hear you jumping up and down and maybe we'll mention a part of that and maybe we won't tonight there's so much to get into the point is john what i think we're looking at is later much lesser civilizations trying to excavate the shattered fallen piles of an incredibly ancient again godlike civilization remember clark's third law any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic and i think they were trying to figure out what their ancestors were up to who they were and how they could retain or reclaim the secrets of the gods themselves so with that as foreshadowing john what did you find well, look no further uh, than image 11 for the magic that you talk about, because if you go to the Gigapan, which I think Keith is going to put up a link for that so listeners can go to the Gigapan and look for themselves, you zoom in, you start looking around, you see all this iridescent glass-like materials, and I believe that they made, I call it rock tech, they were masters of stone and rock and everything's, even the flying vessels and, and sea John, craft, John, well, John, everything John, was... John, did you what? listen to what I just said? This is not rocks. This is what high-tech stuff looks like when exposed to ambient conditions for several million years. Well, that's there, what I'm there, saying. There isn't that's... a damn rock on this place. Well, that's basically what I'm saying. This is very high, this is beyond our science. It's intelligent it's all constructed and um yeah i I could go on but um just if you look around image 11 you're going to see a lot of magical stuff yeah and keith or or kinthia are going to post the link probably in my section to the neville thompson very high resolution gigapan which is the right color the right shade the right contrast, right everything neville got it 100 percent right and on that the more you look the more you're going to find. It's like being on Mars. It's that damn good. My question is, how did Neville Thompson get all this good, stunning imagery? It's because when the door became public, NASA was forced politically to put out the data because the the questioning was becoming overwhelming by the people who paid for these images. Now, why did we get that first door image that went viral on the interwebs? I think it's because one of those people in JPL that Andrew Curry talked about some many, many months ago. Remember how he talked about all the bios of all these incredibly created and gifted people who are behind the scenes managing curiosity and perseverance? All it would take was one of those people breaking ranks and quietly, secretly, stealthily putting out on the web the stunning image of the door and this entire thing was kicked off. Go ahead. Yeah, and image number 12, what I really find interesting is the walkway and you can see that there's quite a bit going on there and I think this is again part of their technology where this, the rock would all have this, it would be magnetized so they 
you, you didn't walk around. Um, you would be floating like on my OBE show. I'm I'm always floating around on a, a round little pad that I have like a little hovercraft. And because I think that's how these folks got around a lot was just they floated around. They weren't walking up and down these structures. They they could the the rock itself, the planet. Is well, a hang smart on, hang planet. on. See, I've I've been wondering something. I'm and, and let I tell you what, let me direct you to another image, because we have a much better image of what John is just talking to. And just let me get it. What you want to do is find my section, looking for my section. Here we are. Just scroll down to the bottom of John's where it says fast link to items. Click on Richard. Go down to my number. Um. Number, oh, it's number 11. How interesting. Number 11. Okay, this is a super close-up. This is not simple material. This is high-tech stuff. This looks like some kind of a holographic three-dimensional projection. However, you can tell that it's really 3D because if you look to the left, and maybe the wider angle is better, you see that kind of prismatic reflection at the base of the wall on the left, between what I call the ramp and that vertical wall. You see that, John? Yes. That's a reflection of the three-dimensional alien figure, real alien figure that Robert Morningstar and I independently saw and kind of you know, posted back and forth to each other because I wanted him to independently confirm there was a real figure there. It was actually more than one. Like good Martian art, it's a composite of several different images, and you have to look at it for a while, and then you'll see how the gestalt, the larger impression you're supposed to get, is composed of smaller subset images. And I think, I originally thought this was a hologram. Because of the reflection on the wall, I think this is literally a raised um incredible insignia right there at the doorway to whatever this is and i think you may be right john instead of walking up this uh, ramp or pathway they could have floated yes that's the impression i get and which means I they had control of gravity and, and inertia like any good hyperdimensional physics people do Oh, it, it would seem so magical if we could witness, go back in time and witness their technology. It would seem like magic to us, like you said, Richard. It, it's really incredible. So we're going back to your stuff, okay? Okay, uh, let's see. Uh, number 13 is just a close-up of the doorway, and I've highlighted a few things there. And I mean, there's so much stuff that jumps out at me but i've just highlighted a few See, one things. of the reasons we put all these images up is that long after the show is off the air you know when, in the middle of the week you go to this you look at these images you listen to the show you open new doorways in your own mind to additional research study background check the internet for this check for that in other words we're building archives to our ongoing real-time investigation so if we don't get to every image forget it you can on your own time if you're a member of Club 19.5. So you'll have the context. So please go ahead. Yeah, number 14, I thought I'd add a little alien in there just to <laughs> give people <laughs> And uh, a door, you know, transparent door. And um, 
I didn't put him on a, a floaty thing. I have him standing there, but I, I think he'd probably be on a little hover pad, a uh, little hover pod, and he'd he'd come out. And, okay, well, this is speculation, but it's consistent. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. consistent. I mean, we're not looking at you know primitive Egyptian style technology. We're looking at something light years beyond that. In our model, when it got to Earth, and we'll get to how that happened, it devolved, and apparently it split. And we're going to talk about that in detail when I bring Ron on. Anyway, number 15. Number 15, this is an alternate alternate angle Okay, image. now this is an image which is incredibly controversial, even among some members of the team. Given the fact that we've now documented that NASA is trying to screw us royally six ways from Sunday by mislabeling images, by mislabeling the Traverse maps, by mislabeling everything, because if they if they conceal where the rover really was when it took the pictures, we have no way of independently calculating the scale of anything, how big stuff is. That depends on geometry, but you got to know where you are. And what I discovered last night, to my chagrin, is that NASA has deliberately lied. I'll underscore that again. NASA's deliberately lied about the ancillary images around this discovery and are trying their level best to screw people up so they'll get tired, exhausted, exasperated. They'll go on to something more glamorous, you know, maybe the, the um, uh, you know, Johnny Depp trial or whatever. So this is all about distraction. Don't let them start thinking about what this all could mean. And you do that by throwing out an image that has no number, no provenance, as they say, no connection to a known verifiable reality, just to basically throw a spanner in the works. However, some of us, I being among them, think this is actual real data, that this is a real picture, but it cannot be from any of the solves uh, that we've looked at so far because unless they're really hiding it and just this was leaked out as someone on the inside again who couldn't give us the number because that would tell instantly who it leaked. Um, there are things on this image that correlate with things I'd figured out earlier from the other angle. And so I am of the opinion that this is real, if controversial, data. And we will leave that for other other discussion later in the show. So go ahead. Yeah, I want to mention scale, too, because for a long time I felt that these high-tech Martians were actually like an inch tall. And I thought of them as wait, the wait, wait. Back up. Back up. You said what? They are very little people. Okay. The Martians were right. very small. You, yes. need, you need to back this up. Why do you think? What's the data that made you think they were an inch tall? From reviewing images you know the, the rover images many images i guess rock nest confirmed it for me the one with the sphinx in the background and the pyramid behind the sphinx and, okay rock nest well, was a site on i believe the path uh, the um uh, pathfinder was that path, i believe so pathfinder mission with the little sojourner rover mm -hmm. okay well i saw artifacts on those images way back when this is 1997 and of course i you know had coast as a platform so i put it out there that yes martians could in fact be much smaller than we expect as quote normal human beings and i got a lot of pushback as they say at the time and then it kind of dropped because you know things evolve and i brought this up the other night kind of in our in-house discussions 
And I was surprised that some people are really resistant to the idea. So let me give a little backdrop. If you accept all the evidence of the hyperdimensional model, and if you accept, John, the idea, as we all do, that on Earth there have been creatures ranging from incredibly big, like anybody remember Jurassic Park and the latest movie, and Brontosaurus eye and Triceratops and Tyrannosaurus. In other words, those guys were the biggest land creatures ever on the planet. And then they disappeared. And now we have life forms that the biggest are much, 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 much smaller. And in the oceans, the biggest life form is only possible on the scale of some ancient dinosaurs because they're floating in water. Their mass, their weight is, you know, counterbalanced uh, by the buoyancy of these massive, you know, whale creatures, humpbacks and sperm whales and all those guys who are Richard, related. Say, yes. Yes, Ron. blew past the break. Oh, good. <laughs> 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 I'll tell you what, if, if, if we stop now, can we, can we uh, just kind of recycle the count and edit quickly when you, when you do the show for air? Uh, try i would suggest you stop <laughs> that's what i'm going to do yes okay so we will continue this on the other side of midnight um this is so interesting i do get lost sometimes because the subject will not quit you're on the other side of midnight all of us now the americans the russians the chinese everybody is looking for who's ever out there, the occupants of interplanetary craft. That's our current doorway for the U.S. government, the Pentagon, NASA, to find out, to let the rest of us know, are there aliens? Calling occupants of interplanetary craft. Calling occupants of interplanetary most extraordinary craft. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And... You'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because... Without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>